Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we are pleased to have our interview with James R. Harrigan. Hey, Ron, how's it going? I'm great, Ed. I'm looking forward to this. You know, when Anthony Davies was on a few weeks ago, we did not read his book in anticipation of that show, which I felt really guilty about. Uh, the book Cooperation and Coercion, but I have read it now, so um, this will be great because James tells us of the two, he's the smarter one. That is correct, and let's not call it his book anymore. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> well, by way of quick introduction, James R. Harrigan is the, distingu- the, is the Hayek Distinguished Fellow, that's Friedrich, not Selma, by the way, at the Foundation for the Economic Research and the Senior Editor for the American Institute of Economics Research. He's the co-host of the aforementioned Words and Numbers podcast. He was previously the Dean of the American University of Iraq Soleimani and later served as the Director of Academic Programs at the Institute for Humane Studies and Strata where he was also a senior research fellow, written extensively for the popular press with articles in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, among others. And his current work focuses on the intersections between political economy, public policy, and the political philosophy. And his book today, which we're going to talk about, his book, <laughs> Cooperation and Coercion. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, James R. Harrigan. Thank, thanks, Ed. I'm sorry about the... Uh... The bio, that was a bit of a mouthful. I, I don't even think my mother would have read the entire thing. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pretty quick reader because I'm from New York originally, so we get it in pretty quickly. So it's um, good and I had to make the Hayek joke. I, 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 can't, I can't resist this, the Frederick, not, not Selma Hayek joke. Oh, and more's the pity. More's the pity. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's nice being here with you guys. Nice meeting you, Ed. Nice meeting you, Ron. Thanks for having me around. Appreciate it. Well, fill in some blanks. Um, where did you grow up? What led you both into and then out of academia? Oh, good Lord. Uh, so I was born and raised in uh, Watertown, Connecticut, which is uh, one town off of Waterbury. I went to, to high school in Waterbury the way you do. Um, and then off to college for me, I was looking forward to it. I went to Boston University and uh, promptly, well, not exactly promptly, I wasted two years and then got thrown out. Um, which was a, a, a bit of a problem. I, I ended up going to the University of Connecticut, my own state school, uh, who, and they at first didn't want to accept me either because when you've gotten thrown out of a college, you're going to pay for that sooner or later, or probably sooner. Anyway, I took three degrees at UConn, a, a bachelor's in political science, a bachelor's in history, and a master's in political science. Um, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, top 2% of my undergraduate class. Somehow things changed, right, between that time I was in Boston and the time I went to UConn, and what changed was my attitude. I, I stopped thinking I had anything owed to me and that maybe I had to work really hard. And I ended up working my way through school 50, 60 hours a week, third shift, right? So it, it humbles you. And that's been an enduring lesson, right? A, a little bit of humility goes a long way. And I, I hope that comes through in the book. 
<clears throat> excuse me. Anyway, um, from there out to the Claremont Graduate School in Southern California, from there on a bit of an odyssey of one and three year appointments, uh, finally ended up at St. Vincent College in Western PA and uh, tenure tracked the whole bit and, and came to realize that I kind of hated my life. And, you know, when you're a middle-aged guy and you come to hate your life, you have to have your crisis. And my middle-aged crisis was, took me to, to Iraq, uh, where I became the, the dean of the American University of Iraq, Suleimania. Um, from there, I came back home, did a bunch of nonprofit stuff. After that, to the University of Arizona, the Freedom Center. And from there, directly to here, AIER, the American Institute for Economic Research. So that was kind of tiring. Uh, it sounds like I'm an interesting person, but I'm probably not, you know. Well, we found certainly your book interesting as well. The book, again, is Cooperation and Coercion, How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies and What It Means for Economics and Politics. And Anthony, I'm sorry, James, oh, sorry, really big problem there. Um, I, I have to ask you about this. It's chapter four of the book, but I'm going to jump into it because it's the lead really in the news this week. Quoting from the book. We have also brought our troops, planes, and drones to many nations, and the killing we have done in those places, some warranted, some not, will doubtlessly result in the kind of hatred for the United States that have led the, to the attacks that fired up this merry-go-round in the first place. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate, isn't it? Um, you start to think that, that 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 paragraph is probably going to be current when my children have children. And, you know, how do I know this? Well, take a look at where we've been. If you look at Afghanistan, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at Afghanistan right now, there are American servicemen there whose fathers were there. It's actually a generational thing. And yeah, we're leaving. And I have no great faith that we will stay left because there's going to be more trouble. And when there's more trouble, American presidents look to take a chunk out of somebody in the Middle East. So I'm, I'm not convinced that this is really goodbye. I know it's going to be a very difficult time for any number of people who live there, people who assisted the Americans and always believed that the Americans would keep their word and protect them in the future, which now as you see these people falling from the sky as they grasp onto the landing gear of an airplane as it takes off, I think you can tell how desperate these people are, right? And it, it's, in my mind, it's absolutely fused with 9-11, when we watched people jumping, because that was the least awful option they had. Um, and now I see the same thing. And, you know, I'm jaded at this point, right? I've, I've seen a lot of administrations, and they're, they're all ready for a Middle Eastern in, uh, adventure. And when it happens again, I mean, how are we going to get out of it next time? Are we, are we sure that we should be leaving now? And these are the sorts of questions that never really get answered. We just play with them over and over and over again. Yeah, by my calculation that I heard on a podcast, on the low side, we have spent $150 million a day, each day, for 20 years. Now, you probably recall a couple of weeks ago when people freaked out over billionaires spending their own money to go to space. <laughs> and yet, $150 million a day, each day, for 20 years. I, I can't reconcile that in my brain. <laughs> yeah, no, I, nor can I. Uh, I. I don't even know where to begin when you're thinking about something like this. It's almost as if no matter what we do, it's not going to help. And, and maybe I can offer this little bit. 
Um, when I went to Iraq, I went with two suitcases and the best of intentions, right? And I, I got I got into this job, the dean of the American University. But more importantly, I moved there. I got my apartment. I started living there. I looked around the way you do. And it became very, very apparent to me. And I would say probably at about that third week, um, it became very apparent to me that there was absolutely nothing the United States government could do to impose any kind of government or any kind of value set onto the Iraqis. Because we were working with one set of assumptions, they were working with a very different set of assumptions. I'm not willing to say that they're wrong or crazy. It's just different. Now, are they wrong? Yes, sometimes, just like we are. Are they crazy? Well, yeah, sometimes just like we are. So this is about what you, what you come to find, right? But if anybody had just gone there for three weeks, like I did, they would have known that you're not going to be able to do this. So to Afghanistan, what's your goal? It's never really been stated. Right? Even now, 20 years later, I'm not exactly sure what the goal was. Well, if, you, if you're not sure of the goal, how will you ever know you've, you've achieved it? Uh, so this just seems to be a morass, right? This mess that we've made over time in a part of the world that we don't understand all that well. And from the Afga- from the Afghanistan from the Afghani perspective, they they've beaten us twice and the Russians once. <laughs> yeah, and but is there and that's one of the, the the thoughts? Is there really an Afghani perspective? Is there really an Iraqi perspective? These are these are these are not nations like. Japan and Germany were that we were able to rebuild in the sense that they had joined the quote community of nations already. These are constructs. Afghanistan is a construct. It's not a real nation. Yeah, and and Iraq surely was, and and I got that in spades because when I moved there, I moved to the Iraq to the um, the Kurdish north. Mm. The Arab the Arabs didn't live there, right? The the, the Persians were about twelve miles to my east. But to get to Baghdad, that'd be about 180 miles. And, you know, they wouldn't have let me through in most instances. Um, but, you're, you know, you, you've got a point here. Are these nations as we understand the term? And probably not, although, you know, the United States, I think, is going to be a problem in this, in this understanding of things, too. But if, for example, the government of Germany disappeared tomorrow, you'd still have Germans. And if the government of France disappeared tomorrow, you'd still have French people. Well, what happens when the government of Iraq falls apart? Afghanistan, do you have sufficient enough people? Do they identify with each other enough to do anything well? And now I'm not so sure. And look, I I would put that same criticism against the United States, right? If if our government disappeared tomorrow, are there still Americans? Uh, One of my favorite quotes of all time is from G.K. Chesterton who wrote a travel book, right? That before, before there was a travel channel, people wrote travel books. And uh, Chesterton came, it was called What I Saw in America. Um, it was very good. I think it was 1931, if memory serves. And he said there, up at the beginning, that the United States is the only nation, now or ever, that was founded on a creed that all men are created equal. And I've always thought that that was the most excellent analysis of the United States from a non-participant in the of the building of the United States, right? That one sentence captures so much that I think I elevated in my mind a little bit above even Tocqueville, which is kind of astonishing if you think about it. But we're left in a world, right, where some nations are just compressed and, and built out of other castoffs. 
and other nations are, are pretty clearly um, ethnically driven. Uh, where, where this leaves us in the future, I'm not so sure. And I think anybody who is sure is probably wrong, right? because these things can turn on a dime. And as I said a little earlier, a certain amount of humility, I think, is necessary, because we're seeing right now this week the most powerful military that has ever been assembled running away with its tail between its legs from Afghanistan. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, my, one of the lines I've said to people is, look, they, 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 the, the, the folks in Afghanistan have been throwing rocks at each other for millennia. The, the mistake that we and the Soviets made was giving them anything more than rocks. And, <laughs> and we've done that right now to an overwhelming degree. We left a bunch of things behind that we might have been better off melting. And I'm sure it's going to yeah. come back. It's going to come back to us. There are going to be stories of American American citizens abroad who were killed with weapons that the American army left in Afghanistan. I mean, you can almost see it coming. Um, yeah. But but here we are. Yeah. The younger the younger version of me would have been shocked by all of this. The jaded version of me right now. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree. Well, hopefully in my next segment with you, it'll be a little bit more joyful. But we're up against our first break. Want to remind our guests that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email. That's right, James, an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Don't forget, we're sponsored by our Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind? Get one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with James R. Harrigan, and he's the author of Cooperation and Coercion, How Busy Bodies Become Busy Bullies, and What That Means for Economics and Politics. James, you say there's only two ways humans can work together. They can either cooperate or they can coerce one another. 
first is voluntary and the second is involuntary. Explain that. Well, I mean, I think that's true, right? I do think there are only these two ways. These are, these are the poles. And more often than not, what you see is some mixture of the two, right? Anywhere you have government, you have definitionally authoritarianism. I mean, you can't escape that. And there are any number of things that only government can do. I mean, I'm not an anarchist, not even close. Um, more of an Aristotelian Jeffersonian, right? If you want to nail it down. I don't even think we have to argue about anarchism at this point, because really, it's so far off at this point that, you know, there's no chance of getting there. We have to deal with incrementally making a nudge towards that direction. Um, but people, once you take a look at how they actually live and how they behave with one another, they're actually quite cooperative. Now, it's not every time. And, and if people are looking to, you know, lodge that criticism, well, no kidding. I mean, I kind of figured. But if you really think about it, and, and I mean, really think about it, take a thought experiment and walk me through your day, because I can walk you through mine as an example. Um, I wake up in a lovely house with my family. The doors were all locked at night, but they probably didn't have to be right. And, and all of this. And I go and I sit and I have my coffee and the whole bit. But then I leave and I go to work. Uh, so what do I do? I, I drive on the roads, interacting literally with tens of thousands of people on a five mile trip. They're everywhere. Uh, and I live in a major metropolitan area, Tucson, Arizona. Um, none of them crash into me. Why? Well, because we've all decided that we're just going to do it thusly. Did we need government to say you must do this? No, not really. Actually, you, you don't. We would have figured that one out just fine. Um, also, when I park my car and I get out and I walk any place, I'm not ruthlessly beaten or killed. Matter of fact, almost no one is. Why? Because social life is a, is a collaborative affair. We do it with each other. And I know we don't tend to see it this way. And, and when, when I point it out, surely it sounds corny to some people, but it's nonetheless true. Right? We have deeply cooperative roots and we want to, right? It, it's what defines us as we live together. Now, are we also going to need some form of coercion? Yeah, we are. Um, not a lot, certainly not what we now experience, right? The, there is the, the standard remark at this point, and I, I don't know how true this is, but it rings true enough, is that the average American commits three felonies a day. Well, all right, I mean, we've gotten out of hand here. Um, not one, there isn't one person who could read all the laws we're subjected to. and. Let's cut that in a little bit. There's not one person who could read the tax code, which is itself just a very small percentage of all the rest of it. So obviously the law doesn't operate on us the way people think it does. If there's no way to understand all of it, trust me, that's not what's, what's, what's operating underneath the surface. What's operating underneath the surface is our natural inclinations. And, and those bring us to, to cooperate with one another all the time. And it happens so much that we don't even think about it. It's, it's kind of like asking that goldfish what water is. Uh, you wouldn't even know where to begin, right? Well, so too cooperation. We just look right past it and we talk about the terrible thing that happened down at, at you know, the, the bad end of town last night. But that's not definitive. What's definitive is that we all get along with each other so beautifully that no coercion is necessary. 
And James, one of the reasons this matters, and it matters, I know, for a lot of reasons, liberty, freedom, all of that. But one of the things you point out is that when you look at poor countries that rely more on cooperation than coercion, they have less poverty and less inequality. And I thought that was some really interesting empirical evidence. It's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? it? You know, it really is. When you start dividing things up and looking at different populations, different parts of the globe, um, very important things emerge. You start to see things in the data that you didn't expect you would find. And yet here we are. So, you know, this is something that another thought experiment, right? I mean, how many of you have been to another country? Did you even think twice about it? You get on the plane with all your presuppositions. Um, if you're an American, probably a loud Italian, a, a, a loud Hawaiian shirt and a big giant camera, these kinds of things. But you go to some far flung place and you get off and you know exactly what to do and how to behave and how to act. How, how is that? It's not that there's some kind of code out there. Uh, it's just that human beings want certain things. And if you know what they want, you know how to behave more or less. When I got to Iraq, easily the weirdest place I've ever lived, right? The most foreign place to me. I knew exactly how to, how to get on. It wasn't hard at all. And I figured it out on the first day. I thought, oh, man, I'm in real trouble here. And I, I said, I'm hungry. Uh, I just had a 36-hour flight. I slept it off. It's probably been 45, 50 hours since I've had a bite to eat. All I had in my, in my wallet was three crisp $100 bills. I went to another continent with $300. I don't even know what I was thinking. And um, I figured, well, let's walk outside and see what we can do. And right away, I saw cabs. I waved my hand and he pulled up and I showed him the bill and he said, get it. We didn't speak the same language, but he knew what I was holding and I knew what he was doing. And I, I went... I'm pointing at my mouth, right, to, to find some food. And he, he went, ah, and he drove me right to a, a restaurant. And I said, no, no, no. And I mimicked a shopping bag. And he said, ah, and he brought me to a, a grocery store. And I, I, I said, you wait here. He didn't understand, but pointing downward was all he had to do. I went in. I bought a bunch of groceries. I paid with the American money. I got Iraqi money in return. I went outside. He was still waiting there. He took me back to where I'd started. I couldn't have done any of that if it was all that difficult, right? Everybody knew what I wanted because what else would I want, right? It's clearly I don't belong there, pretty hungry. And, and the more you live, the more you see this kind of thing. Is, is there a, a difference really between, I don't know, the United States and Scotland? I mean, the Scots don't speak English, so at least there's that. Um, <laughs> But is there a real difference? And, you know, having walked around Edinburgh for a while, I don't think so. Everybody there knew exactly how to behave, and it was real easy for me to fall in behind them. So think about these sorts of things when I say cooperation. Right, we don't have to get to who's going to pave the roads and what about the town dump. What we really need to talk about is just how deep can that, can that cooperation go? And the answer is pretty far, pretty deep. And I don't know where the clear line of delineation is. I don't think any of us do. I know what's on one side of it and what's on the other. That stuff in the middle, it gets a little confounding. But really, let's start with the stuff on one side or the other. And we could, we could probably do so much more than people realize. I think they'd be genuinely shocked. Yeah, I'm in awe of, of things like that when you really, like you say, step back and think about it. I mean, the fact that I can go to another country who's 
language I don't speak, hand somebody a plastic card with my name on it, and they right. give me car a car. That just—it's kind of astonishing when you think about it. It, it, it kind of is. <laughs> I, I, there was a time I lived in Utah. It was an hour and a half, hour forty-five to the airport, and I was going to Poland to see a concert. Think about that for a second. I'm well off enough that I could fly across the world to go to a con ridiculous. Wow. Um, didn't even cost much, actually. And about three quarters of the way to the airport, I realized that I had like $12 in my pocket. Right. One of the all time great moments. Um, yeah. My mother used to refer to me as the professor when I would pull this crap. And um, I said, well, I'm sure it'll work out. So I, I got there and I flew to Poland and I got off the airplane looked around and there was an ATM. I stuck my card in and it spat money out. I didn't know what that money was worth or anything, but it, you know, here it was. And I walked outside by then my phone had already connected and I'm on Uber in Warsaw. And, I, and I'm looking at the address that I have to type in and it's all consonants. Right? I could never have pronounced this if I had to, but I, I punched it in and this dude came and picked me up in his car and he started talking to me in Polish. And I went, what are you saying? And he thought it was hilarious that we couldn't communicate. He thought, and I did too, this is unbelievable, right? I fly halfway around the world, type something into a phone, and a guy comes and gives me a ride. Crazy. And where does he take me? To the address that I programmed in, which was an Airbnb that I rented from a woman who I never met. And this is what I could do just because I felt like it. And, you know, when I explained to young people what it was once like to travel internationally, the, the endless problems that were introduced, you know, you'd have to go and get some kind of traveler's checks, right? This goofy version of money. You don't even have to do that anymore. It's just so easy. You hop on a plane and you go. Um, and, and what do you know? Wherever you go, you're kind of welcome, right? Everywhere I ever went, nobody ever held the, the issues of the United States government over my head. They were just happy to meet me, which I think is how we are with foreigners when they come. Um, I, it never occurs to me to, to get on somebody's back because of what their government is up to. I figure if they've come here, they're probably here for a reason. They probably want to see something else. And so, too, whenever I've traveled, I have never, and I mean never, had a terrible experience on the road. And I think I've been to probably 20, 20 30 countries at this point. It, yeah. it tends to be the easiest thing in the world. And that's how you know that human beings are wired to cooperate with each other. I have to ask, who, who was the concert? Oh, it's the greatest band in the world. I'm happy you asked. It's an English neo-progressive band called Marillion. If you could imagine Pink Floyd and Radiohead ground up into a fine paste, this is what it would sound like. Okay. I, I, I refer to it as the sound of God's laughter. It's just that good. Wow. Wow. It must be if you're willing to fly to Poland. Yeah, I do. They, they do these weekends. So I went to Poland, uh, but they've done a few in Montreal and I always go there. This year, it's going to be Montreal and maybe um, Lisbon. They're, they're in Portugal this year. So it's a good excuse to go see a place I've never been. James, this is kind of unfair. I think we've only got about a minute and a half, maybe two left. But you talk about the knowledge problem, and I love it because you quote the guy from the toaster project, the guy who tried to make his own toaster, and then the guy who made his own chicken sandwich. Those are like I pencil. Those are great stories. Why haven't we learned this lesson? Why do we keep asking government to do things and solve problems when they, nobody knows how to make a pencil? 
Yeah, it's it's difficult, right? Because socially and um, commercially, we know that we can't all just do every single thing that needs to be done to usher in a good result. Politically, we fall for the same line of nonsense every year. Every four years, I'll take the president, the presidential campaign briefly. Well, what happens? We get all these candidates who identify all the same problems that were identified years ago. Um, they give their version of Elizabeth Warren, right? I have a plan for that. Well, of course you do. And your plans are kind of the same as all the other plans for all these other years. Nothing ever really changes. It's on us, right? We have to ask ourselves, why do you keep falling for it every four years? Because it's just not their fault, right? You allow them to lie to you. And as long as that's true, we're going to get the exact same result every time out. So sooner or later, I hope they, they think better of it. But huh. we get the government we deserve. That is exactly correct. Wow. Well, James, this is just flying by and this is wonderful. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out the soul of enterprise.com. We'll post full show notes with our interview with James today. And also become uh, check out our Patreon membership at patreon.com slash TSOE. At a certain tier, you can get shout outs on the show like Blake Oliver did for his company, earmarkcpe.com where you can actually earn CPE for listening to podcasts. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with James R. Harrigan. The book is Cooperation and Coercion, How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies 
and what it means for economics and politics. James, I want to ask you about something related to the book, but also in, in current events as well. And that is this notion of mask mandates. I know uh, from listening to your show that like Ron and myself, you're neither a maskophile nor a maskophobe. Right. Uh, so we're, we're somewhere in the middle. But a, a, fed, a federal mandate wouldn't make much sense because of the principles of federalism. Correct. And we wouldn't want to push that down. But yet here in the state of Texas, the governor has issued a, an edict that that state agencies cannot and, and local governments cannot uh, issue their own ma- mandates. Doesn't that, does that violate the principle of subsidiarity, uh, which which would say the local government would be the best place to make that decision? Talk about the interplay between those two things. Yeah. And, and your use of the word subsidiarity is, is telling. Right. It, you're now you're not talking about federalism as such. Um so how to cut it best, I'm not sure. But the mask business is instructive. Um, and just so people know, I wore a mask until about a month ago. I did it as a courtesy to my fellow citizens who are all agitated about masks. And I figured, all right, if I can wear this and they'll all cut it out, fair enough. But by the time we get to, to the vaccine regime that we now have, by the time we get to the place where every single person has had ample opportunity to get vaccinated. Now I'm, I'm not so cool about it. Right now I'm not wearing a mask. And now I think they owe me the courtesy. And, and we'll see how it goes. I don't think that most of them perceive of it in this way. But the, the issue that you're getting to is much bigger. And, and it's really a question, where should governance occur? And yeah, I think without question, at that lowest possible point, but it's, it's that's confounded here because no matter what that point is, it's going to be pretty easy for a governor to make the case that this is a prime example uh, to use um, to use emergency powers. Right. And every executive in every form of government has this. Right. And it, it's there's nothing untoward about it. We usually think about this when earthquakes happen. Right. When the when the hurricane comes through. And, and we all want the governor to have that. Well, emergency powers are for emergencies and a pandemic, I think, kind of kind of fits. Now, having said that, I can think of Whitmer and Cuomo, uh, Cuomo, especially. I, I, I can't think anything but that he is a murderer. And even after he knew what he was doing was causing trouble, he kept right on doing it. So clearly, I don't want to go that far. Um, I don't know where I fall down. This is a very hard issue. And, you know, the old, the old saying, hard cases make bad law. Um, that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a bunch of hard cases. And I'm pretty sure nobody knew what on earth to do. And at this point, with all of this in the rearview mirror, do we know any better what we should do? And it, it seems not because everybody's about to make the same exact mistakes. And I think, you know, having done it once and having seen the damage, there's probably a better way. And I find that nobody's even looking for it. It, It's a giant CYA affair. And that that's terrible when you look at the damage that's been done to human beings. And it's all fun and games, right? When the intelligentsia and the elite of society decide how we're all going to live. But I didn't meet anybody who was all in favor of lockdowns who needed to go do his job to make a living. Everybody who was in favor of these lockdowns, they didn't have to worry about where the next dollar was coming from. 
And it was so terrible that we, we got even more lousy law um, disallowing landlords from evicting people. Uh, now we're just putting the landlord on the hook for it, right? No matter where you go, there's another terrible answer. And I just don't think the correct answer anymore is in this ham-fisted gubernatorial sort, sort of gavel that gets pounded down day after day after day. There, I think we all have to take a deep breath here and, and ask ourselves, what do we want to accomplish? Because if we want to keep everybody safe and sound, there are probably ways we can do that well short of shutting everybody down. Right. Well, the, in the principle of subsidiarity down to my household, because we, we are in a school district in Texas that's not requiring masks. I have my son who does not wear a mask and my daughter, who's four years younger, who feels very comfortable and prefers wearing a mask. So guess what? We're letting them make the decision that works for them as parents. That's what, that's what we're doing. So because I don't, as you said, I don't even know what's right for me most of the time. That's right. <laughs> so I'm going to jump subjects on you. Um, uh, apologize, but this is one of my most my favorite uh, historical uh, asterisks, I guess, and that is the original First Amendment or the first article which was put forward, which is known, let me get, get the, uh, the, the it up here, the Congressional Apportionment Amendment, which if, if enacted, if enacted, would increase the size of Congress from 435 to roughly 6,000 members today. <laughs> yeah, and you can, you, can find, you can find the original math here in the Federalist. Um, so I, I think it was Madison who, who wrote the, the number. It might have been Hamilton. Um, but it is there in the Federalist. And if you multiply that out, you know, you get like four or five thousand. And it, it's ridiculous even to think of it. So over the years, um, 435 uh, in the House was legislatively fixed. So Congress decided how big Congress was going to be. And I think 435, not a bad answer actually but but the, the more we grow and, and we're at 300 and some odd million people now um we're going to have to admit that that's not perfectly representative shall we say it's not even poorly representative of, of the united states and i think we're, we've gotten too big for that right if you if if all of your if all of your energies are pointed at, at this federal behemoth you're probably going to live a very, very annoying life. Right? You're just going to have to admit that before you get in. Because that government is, is so big that there's nothing it can't do, and so big that it can't do anything all that well. And, and that's a bit of a problem, right? I don't think having more representatives fixes a thing. I think maybe looking back at the states one more time and asking what were they supposed to be doing there, that's probably the best answer. Um, to, to reinvigorate federalism in some meaningful way. But what cost us federalism? And the answer here is clear, it was slavery, right? We had a civil war, a war, a war among the states. We had already proven that states were not the, the perfect answer to every question. And then we get the post-Civil War amendments, which again, take a giant chunk out of, out of states' rights. Well, why? Well, because there was slavery. And, and it does us well to keep remembering that. Because as long as that's true, states weren't the perfect answer either. And, and we just have to walk in with our eyes wide open here. I still think that a, re a recursion, a reversion to the mean here is probably what we're looking for. I think we have to look at states as meaningful subdivisions that as a whole sit right alongside the federal government in terms of the power they wield. Will we ever get there? I, I don't know, because 
everybody, all the concerned players are utterly convinced that Washington, D.C. is where they want to be. They, they deal with the people that they all know right now. And there's a path dependence here that is likely never to go away. So I, I, I suspect that the federal government will have to fall to pieces before we get anywhere down that road. And for the record, I think that's going to happen. And I think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Um, and I'm kind of old. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, my fantasy is that somehow more states ratify this original First Amendment and we have to somehow deal with it, <laughs> which yeah. is just throw utter chaos in, in, into the situation. But I think you're right. I think the, the better play for us all is is more federalism. But as soon as you start to bring that up, you get basically accused of being pro-slavery, which is like, yeah. wait, 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 hold on. Look, that is the history of federalism. And, and I think yeah. we, have to, we have to own that. Um, interestingly and, and hilariously, I think um, that you would you would ask this question because people in my line of work are constantly listening to the founders thought it was so important that they put free speech in the First Amendment, yeah. you know? <laughs> which which is which is foolishness of the first rank. Right. That was the Third Amendment as they were as they were proposed. Um, but what can you do? And, and interestingly enough, my understanding is this is one of the few times that George Washington actually broke his silence and was very much in favor of this apportionment amendment, something that he, he actually believed in. Well, it made a fair amount of sense uh, at the time, especially because it was pretty clear that the, the division among the division bet between us or among us was uh, rural and, and urban right? cities and countryside. And that was meaningful. And you got all the same kinds of things then as you get today, right? So the farmers were utterly convinced that the entirety of the financial and political system was against them. Well, of course, they thought that. They were underneath gigantic loans that they couldn't pay up. How does this not sound familiar, right? Mm -hmm. This over and over and over again. And we still do have that rural-urban divide. If we didn't, we wouldn't be talking every couple of years about going to a popular vote for the presidency. We get that because the Democrats own the urban areas. And if they could get a popular vote, there's more people in the urban areas than everybody else. Um, so they would, without question, win election after election after election, which is exactly why uh, people in the, the more rural parts of the country want no part of it, because they want to be represented a very different way. And the nice part about it is, is that we got the, the House and the Senate formed along two different plans of representation. And it works pretty well. Does it work great? No, not really. It works pretty well. And do you really want a government that works decisively? Uh, I don't. That terrifies me. I want a government that can't get a whole lot done, that's designed to do as little as possible, and that little tiny bit that it does do, um, it can't really get done because people are at each other's throats in the legislative body. Yes, please. Um, every couple of years, some, some nutcase from business says, I'm going to run for president and I'm going to run the United States like a business. Oh, God, no. That would be, that would be terrible. I just, Ross Perot is the one that's in our minds, right? Because he, we're of that era that remembers Ross Perot. But there's always somebody who says this every couple of years. Uh, Donald Trump, I believe, said it. And, mm -hmm. then, would, mm -hmm. and then found out that, no, that, that's not how things happen. Um, yeah. he, became, he became agitated and petulant about it, but that's not how things happen. And thank God. I'm glad I lived in a time when a president that I didn't think too highly of couldn't get his, his will through the, the legislature all the time. He got some, but he didn't get everything. It, it was difficult. 
And I think that's the beauty of the system. It's designed to work poorly. Yeah, I, I heard this first first on, on Jonah Goldberg's show. I mean, he was quoting somebody else, and I can't remember who. He says, what we should do is just let's change the pronunciation of the word president to president. And <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a reminder that that's all they're supposed to do is preside. <laughs> I mean, if, if I could have one presidential wish, I think it would be to discontinue the State of the Union address. This, is, this pernicious nonsense that we do every every year. Um, that used to be a letter that was just sent over and read into the congressional record. That that seems even that's too much to me. Um, but for totally crying, agree. For, for crying out loud, I, I don't. And I, I look, this is my job. I have to pay attention, but I don't want to. Well, we are up against our last break. This has been great. Uh, so fun to have you on, James. Uh, Ron's going to take you home in the last segment, but I just wanted to say thanks. want to remind our listeners that you can contact us by sending that email to AskTSOE in the Verisage, um, at Verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with James R. Harrigan, and the book is Cooperation and Coercion. James, I'm going to tap into your political philosophy and political science brain. So it's kind of, I'm going to give you a series of rapid questions somewhat, because we've only got about seven or eight minutes. Sure. In the book, you talk about our propensity for having a war on nouns, (laughs) you know, drugs, poverty, terrorism. And I just want to ask you about poverty. Uh Uh, It seems like the war on poverty, it seems poverty is won. Yep. Why, right. why, why do you think the people don't understand that the only antidote to poverty is wealth creation? Uh, I, well, I can tell you why I think the legislature doesn't want to think about that, right? That, that takes their own power away. And it's a weird thing, right? When you start unpacking this war against common nouns that we've, we've done for all these years, 
Um, if you added the big three, the three you just mentioned, you find that we've already spent about $25 trillion on these things. Meaning to say, if we hadn't, we would have almost no debt right now. Isn't that something? That it's almost the same amount on our debt and on these three things. But look, politicians, I, I think, it, the only way to look at them is the honest way. They think that they have every right and, and the ability to run your life. And that's just where they sit. Um, a truly smart person wakes up every day knowing that he doesn't know much. Politicians wake up every day knowing that they have sufficient knowledge in their heads to tell everybody what to do all the time. And if, if you fall for that, trust me, that's a you problem. Because politicians have existed from time immemorial, and they've always thought exactly this way. If, if you doubt me, Go to ancient Chinese literature, ancient Greek literature, mm -hmm. and ancient Jewish literature, and you find exactly the same thing happening with all of them. So it shouldn't be coming as a surprise. And when somebody tells you, don't worry about it, don't pay any attention, I've got this, you should really start paying a lot of attention. James, what's your position on the universal basic income? Oh, I think that's a terrible idea. That Anthony and I disagree on this to a certain extent for, for good reasons. And I would say, if you could promise me that if I went for a UBI, if that would do away with every other, and I mean every other grant that we make to people in the form of welfare of this sort or that, I would be an enthusiastic proponent. But in the end, you're going to, if you subsidize something, you're going to get more of it. And a UBI subsidizes sloth. You will get more of it. You're seeing it right now, right? We, we gave people these sweetheart uh, unemployment packages, and now they don't want to take their old jobs back because they're not good enough. Well, that, that's a terrible thing we did teaching people that. But we did teach them that, and they learned it quickly. So, you know, you want, you want more of something, subsidize it. So be careful with, with what you want more of. Do you worry that Congress, about Congress's impotence, I mean, they're just, a, you know, willingness to give power to the president and bureaucracy and just not make any major decisions? Yeah, and, and they've been doing this for years, right? This is a, a 20th century phenomenon. And yeah, I, I think each of the three branches should be held strictly to the constitutional provisions. And the legislature is the only place where legislation should come. And that doesn't mean you can allow an unelected bureaucracy to come up with its version. No, no, no. Um, and it, the common rejoinder is that, well, we can't really do it then. And I say, amen. Know, know your role. Know how far you can go. Know what's sensible. And, and if you think it's sensible to have a, a congressional, re if you think it's sensible that we have 180 pages of regulation, you're out of your mind. You're just out of your mind. When the Federal Register began, late mid to late 1930s, Roosevelt's years, it started at 6,000 pages. And people said, oh, my God, how will we ever follow it? And it goes right back to something I said earlier. There's nobody in the world who could read that and follow it. And if you could read it all, it would take too long because by the time you got to the end, the next year would have already started. So there's literally no way to make this work. And if that's not a natural argument against active government, I don't know what is. People should realize that every time government shows up to give them something, they're taking something too. 
and the American people just don't think that way. They think that way when they're finally when they're finally on the losing end of something, but by then it's generally too late. Hmm. I, I think it's generally too late right now for all of us, but what can you do? George Will wrote a book in 1992 called Restoration, and it was one of the best arguments I've ever read for term limits at, at the federal level. Where do you stand on term limits? This comes up a lot. Um, I stand on knowing that term limits are unconstitutional. So says the Supreme Court of the United States. What was it? Uh, now I'm going to have to remember the case name. Anyway, 92, I think it was. Um, mm. So if you want to have term limits, as with the president, right, we, we get the term limit for the president, but it did require a constitutional amendment. Well, so to this, if you want congressional term limits, and I kind of think that's not a bad idea, right? But But I understand that you can't just wave your magic wand and make it happen. This has been ruled on. There's no gray area here. If you want this, you're going to need an amendment. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Right. Would you see any benefits to term limits if they did it? Yeah, of course. I think the downside is that you wash out experienced people and that sometimes having an experienced uh, committee chair, right? It makes a lot of sense, especially on the big ones. The, the upside on the other part of that is that you get some fresh blood, right? And what you, what you realize when you start looking at congressmen is that incumbency is such an advantage that it's almost impossible to unseat an incumbent in regular circumstances. Uh, and, and that's probably not for the best, right? It should be at, at least operational, operationally possible plausible is probably the better word for it, that you could run for a house seat and beat an incumbent, but it almost never happens. When it does, you probably remember back in 1994 when the, the Democrats lost control of the entire legislature uh, across the country. That was a weird election. Nothing happened prior to that that really looked like that. Nothing happened after that that really looked like that. So, you know, why is it that the incumbents have such an advantage when they're so obviously doing a poor job? And the answer is clear. We've looked into this a number of times. It's always the same. Um, when you poll people about what they think of their congressman, they like them. It's all those other ones that are the problem. And that's just so idiotic. I don't even know where to start with that. But that's what people do believe, right? They see their own congressman enough to have good feelings. They think about the dead and this worthless, you know, Congress. And, well, they're thinking about everybody that they've never seen. They don't put together that if they move to another district, now it's different for them. They just don't think this way. And that's that's a problem. And I don't see a way around it. We've got about one minute, James. Last question. What about a state constitutional convention? I'm actually a fan. Uh, I, I think that wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea. The problem is, is the minute it's called, no matter what impediments are put on it, whatever requirement, if they say you may only go and do this. Doesn't matter once they get there, they can rewrite anything they want the minute they get there. And that that is going to be a time of tremendous difficulty. I'm still kind of a fan. But I know the stakes, and people should know the stakes before they think this is a good idea. Right. Well, James Harrigan, thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. Your book, Cooperation and Coercion, is fantastic. Great read. We're going to link it up every, everything that you guys have done up on the show notes. And, Ed, what do we have coming up next week? 
Uh, next week, Ron, we are going to talk about a subject that is near and dear to both our hearts. Um, and uh, we're we going to talk about regulation versus reputation, which is the more important. Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. <laughs> This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on our website at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>